Welcome to the Spiritual Leadership Podcast with Pastor Paul Chapel, pastor of Lancaster Baptist Church and founder and president of West Coast Baptist College. Well, thank you for joining us for the Spiritual Leadership Podcast, and I am really excited about what God is doing through this podcast and especially the response from our last podcast with Pastor Dean Miller as we talked about growing as a leader and growing in grace and ministry. And uh, thank you for the good feedback that we have received. I had a couple questions that came in and if you have questions that you'd like me to answer on the podcast, remember to send them to qa at lancasterbaptist.org. qa at lancasterbaptist.org. And this question was pertaining to the bus ministry and the question was, if you have a bus ministry in your church, what is a good ratio for the bus crowd to the car crowd attendance? And let me just say, first of all, thank you for having a heart for the bus ministry. Uh, my wife, Terry, was saved through the bus ministry. Uh, my first ministry was bus ministry. I remember sitting in a service and they were asking people to volunteer to serve in the bus ministry and none of the adults did. I was 12 years old and I raised my hand and uh, I had been my mom's assistant. I had been going out with my mom on the bus ministry, uh, but this day at age 12, they gave me a clipboard and uh, the bus driver took me and dropped me off on Saturdays. I rode my bike up and down uh, streets, inviting people to church. And as a 12 year old boy, I had a high day of 72 on the buses. So uh, from an early part of my life, I've always loved the bus ministry. However, I have seen churches that uh, don't use wisdom with respect to how uh, they consider their outreach. And so what I mean by that is, I do believe that there should be a ratio. Um, and the exact ratio is gonna be up to you. I'm gonna suggest maybe, maybe 25, 30% might be a high end of a bus ministry ratio. I know there's some that go to 50. Uh, my philosophy has been that I want to be able to, number one, properly minister to the bus kids. And if I don't have enough workers to draw from, I can't minister to them. Number two, I have not wanted the ministry to the bus kids to hinder our ability to reach families. And so uh, if I have an overwhelming majority in Sunday school classes of bus children who've never heard of Adam and Eve, uh, then those children that uh, come in from a Christian home, many times uh, the dominance of the attention is going towards the bus kids. Uh, that's why years ago we actually began to segregate, probably 25 years ago, and have separate bus children's classes. Someone says, well, they're just as important as the drive-in. Absolutely, the ground is level at the cross. But when you take a sixth grader who's in a Christian school who is studying uh, maybe uh, the major prophets, minor prophets, uh, maybe uh, learning various doctrines, and put him next to a child uh, that's in the sixth grade who's never read the book of Romans, couldn't find it if he had to. Uh, it takes some kind of a miraculous teacher to be able to reach all of those levels. So I would encourage you to keep the ratios manageable and I would encourage you in your structuring of the Sunday school to, to either have a smaller number of bus kids so they're being influenced by uh, hopefully more mature children or to have a separate uh, classroom for the bus kids. You know, it's really amazing to me in this day of uh, consumerism and uh, the seeker mentality and so forth that many churches that, that claim to be gospel-centered are not getting the gospel to the most needy amongst us. And I just would say, uh, keep the buses going, keep reaching out to these children whose parents would never bring them to church otherwise. And hopefully that uh, is a good answer uh, to the question. 
the other question that I had was with respect to how many meetings a year uh, are you uh, comfortable with at the church? We see some churches now that are having fewer and fewer meetings and they're doing things like you know, having one missionary a night for four Sunday nights in a row and then canceling the conference uh, and others that are not having revival meetings at all. I just want to say, first of all, that, you know, obviously we believe in the autonomy of the local church, so that's going to be the call of every pastor. But I'm passionate about a couple meetings at our church. The first one is the revival meeting. We've had it in January for 32 years. I think there's something to be said for moving everything else off the calendar and for four nights getting the church family together. And we don't have a lot, a lot of music. We don't have a lot of preliminaries. We'll do a song or two and write to the preaching. But that has set the tone for our church. Uh, R.A. Torrey said, I can give you a prescription for revival. Let a few people, they need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. And I really believe that the revival meeting has helped our church. Now the Bible says, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So in this day of less and less, uh, I'm, I'm an advocate for revival meeting. And then I'm an advocate for the missions conference. To me, there's something about three or four nights, letting those nights build, hearing from the missionaries, seeing the displays, getting the missionaries into the Christian school, and then making a financial commitment because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so I, I would just say that those two would be minimal. I often beyond that would advise a young church, a young pastor, to have one or two Monday and Tuesday meetings uh, where you bring in a pastor who is gonna essentially solidify and back up the direction that you're giving into a young church. Call it a Bible conference. Uh, I think there's a place for that as well and uh, certainly would encourage you along those lines. But for me, I highly recommend revival meeting and missions conference. Today I'm joined by my dear friend, Dr. Jeff Amsbaugh, who recently became the pastor of the Heritage Baptist Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. And I wanna talk about that in just a moment. Uh, Brother Amsbaugh's been a tremendous blessing. Uh, he's one of those men that I can call and, and uh, bounce something off of, even a scriptural question. And we've always had uh, good fellowship. And today we're going to be talking about really what does it mean to stay the course in ministry and uh, how can we be faithful to our calling? But before we get to that, uh, Brother Amsbaugh, why don't you take a minute and uh, talk for just a moment or two about transition? Because, you know, some of us, uh, you know, have less of that. You've transitioned recently uh, from the north uh, back down to Virginia uh, and really uh, from a great church to another great church. But maybe share a word of testimony about how the Lord opened the doors and where you're at and what God's doing. It's funny about a year before I moved to Virginia, I had called Pastor Edwards on the phone to ask his advice about something. And uh, when we were done uh, talking about that particular issue, he told me that he would be transitioning out in a year and he just asked me to pray about it. And he wasn't thinking about me being his successor and I wasn't thinking about being his successor, but I promised him that I would. And he was thinking at that time he wanted like a 30-year-old something to follow him so that they could stay there for 37 years like he did. Well, uh, he had interviewed somebody and they decided that they didn't want to come and they had two major objections. Uh, they didn't want to follow a founding pastor who had been there for 37 years. Right. And they didn't want to raise their kids in Washington, D.C. Yeah. So uh, we'd been at a board meeting together uh, for BIMI and we had 
on numerous occasions uh, been at the airport together, but we had never been on the plane together. And on this particular occasion, not only were we on the same plane, but he was in 7A and I was in 7B. Wow. So <laughs> only God could have put that seating chart together. That's amazing. So he shared those objections with me and I said, wow, I, I don't understand that. I said, I, I would love to be raised in a city. You know, I, I just think there's so much advantage to being in a, a city environment. And also I've succeeded a pastor who's been there for 37 years and that's not as difficult as this fellow thinks that it is. And he looked back at me and said, well, why don't you pray about it? <laughs> so that's, that's not something I was anticipating, yeah. but I promised him that I would. And over that month that we both coveted to pray together, God gave us both the green light Amen. and it's been Amen. a wonderful transition. Well, Brother Edwards is a man that I highly respect. I know you do as well. Amen. And I'm so glad to see the church continuing on in that direction uh, spiritually. And, uh, and of course you have a background also in a heart for education. I know you have uh, your doctorate from, I think you said Tennessee Temple. Yes, sir. And, uh, and of course, uh, you've worked some with some of the accreditation bodies and such. Uh, so I'm excited for what you're bringing to the church and the school there and appreciate your, uh, your ministry here with us at West Coast Baptist College over the years as well. And when we think about uh, being faithful, uh, you know, you get to a place in your life where uh, you, you say, I wanna finish this course with joy. Amen. I think one of our common mentors is Dr. Don Sisk. You know, here he is in his 80s. He's over in the Philippines today, by the way. Um, he's finishing his course with joy. And you, you begin really the ministry with this heart for the gospel. Uh, that's what it's all about. It's all about this gift. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all you want to do is get the gift out. And what I'd like to talk with you about today is the fact that somewhere along the line in ministry, we start focusing on the packaging of the gift. Mm. We start focusing on, you know, program and neat sayings and uh, websites and conferences and uh, uh, all of the technology. And somewhere along the line in ministry, it's easy to get away from just the basic thing of getting the gift out. And so why don't you talk to us just for a minute about how it started for you. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Uh, tell us about when you first started in ministry and the passion that you had and what you try to do to keep that alive. Well, I guess it started for me even as a young child. My mom and dad used to do three things on every family vacation. They'd go to someplace fun like an amusement park and then they would go to someplace that was Americana where we could learn more about American history. And then on Sunday we were always in the church of a man that God had used mightily. Amen. So in our album growing up, there's pictures of me with all these famous independent Baptist preachers that uh, God's hand was clearly upon. And mom and dad never said, you know, we want you to go into the ministry, but they certainly uh, made it so that I understood preaching was a big deal. I don't remember ever having a Damascus Road experience where God threw me to the ground and said, I want you to take my gospel to the ends of the earth. It's more like Jeremiah from my mother's womb. I felt like this is what I wanted to do. You know, the God had put that desire within my heart. And, um, you know, when I was even in kindergarten, I can remember they giving us the blank sheet of paper and saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd draw a man in a double-breasted suit, wingtip shoes, <laughs> and say, I want to be a preacher. <laughs> uh, Lee uh, Robertson, apparently. Yes, yeah. <laughs> very strong mentor there. So, uh, you know, it's just been that driving compulsion from the get-go that has never waned. And I yeah. still think that I'm so thankful that God 
allows me to be a pastor. It's still Amen. a pinch me thing. You know? Amen. I remember as a boy, uh, we had teenage soul winning. And, uh, you know, we'd go out, ironically, often to a place called Hellier Park in San Jose, <laughs> California. And here, I mean, like seventh grade, going up to people and saying, excuse me, can I ask you a question? If you died today, do you know for sure where you'd spend eternal life? And, you know, looking back, uh, you know, some people might criticize, well, young people shouldn't ask that question, but it put a boldness in my heart. Mm -hmm. And I did have a sincere burden uh, for people to come to know the Lord as Savior. And that's what, when we came to Lancaster, uh, that's, that was my burden. Um, and in fact, this week, in the last 10 days, our church has been to 80,000 homes here in Northern LA County, getting ready for a special day this Sunday. Yeah. It's just been phenomenal. And uh, I've enjoyed going out door knocking. I took my son out. We were out door knocking together. I, I have several families committed. But I'll be honest to say, it's harder and harder to keep soul winning and to keep evangelism at the forefront because there are so many other pulls. Sometimes those are things that are just a part of the growth of a church. Uh, when you move past the, uh, the adolescent age of a church and you see a church age, there's more uh, hospital visits, there's more marriage counseling, there's more administration uh, staff, uh, which we both understand. Uh, and yet, uh, we, we have to continue to keep that fire burning within our own hearts. And I think uh, some of the things that I see pulling pastors away today, one would be program and administration. Uh, and certainly that's needed, uh, but we've gotta, we've gotta get back out and, and keep that soul winner's heart. I think another uh, issue that I see is uh, uh, this idea in some regions of the country that maybe we can just have transfer growth. Mm. Do you see that probably in Virginia some, I would imagine as well? We do, especially with the military going yeah. in and out, we see a lot of transfer uh, growth uh, and lack of growth because of that. Yeah. Um, uh, I heard you make a statement years ago that really resonated with me. I remember you saying, every year you're gonna have people who die, every year you're gonna have people who move, and every year you're gonna have people who get mad. Right, <laughs> so right, right. Just because of those factors, you have to evangelize just to hold your own. You well, know? they say the average urban area has about eight to 10% turnover. About, about eight to 10% of the people move. Uh, and, and in a church like ours, to really just to maintain attendance, we have to baptize four or 500 people a year just to wow. kinda, kind of maintain that. So, you know, it's so important though that we continually are sowing the seed. Uh, and I, I believe that there are those who, you know, in in the reaching out for, for transfer, sometimes they're looking for disgruntled people from who got hurt in some kind of a church or had a bad experience. But But for me, I'm thankful for transfers, but I want to see those new Christians. You know, there's sure. nothing like that. Uh, seeing someone that comes to the Lord as Savior, I think also we've seen some doctrines that have influenced even some of our independent Baptist churches that perhaps have diminished some of this soul winning desire. Um, and I, I believe that uh, we've talked in the past, for example, about some of the misappropriation of the doctrine of grace. Those that would use grace uh, for license to not witness, to not live for the Lord. And as I study the Bible, I see the Bible teaching that we're to use our liberty not as an occasion to our flesh, but by love serve one another. Okay. And I, I really believe that the proper emphasis of grace is important for sanctification and soul winning. Amen. And why don't you talk about that? Because we are hearing a resurgence of talk about 
uh, grace in the sense of I don't have to do anything. And of course, positionally, we don't. We understand that. But how does grace motivate you in sanctification and soul winning? Well, first of all, I would say that it was interesting that when you talked about your own motivation, you talked about being in the Bible and reading it. When you talked about the diminishing of it, you referenced people reading other authors. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> that yeah. does happen sometimes. One of the biggest things that I have to work on personally in my own life is my own devotional life with the Lord. And that means when I read the Bible, I see it as a manual on soul winning and on holiness. Amen. And it inspires me to do that. Also, I have to pray for those things. The more I'm in prayer, the more I recognize my dependency upon God to live a holy life and how much yeah. I need God to live a holy life. And also I recognize when I'm weak in soul winning, I need God to inflame me Amen. and to empower me to go out. By nature, I think I'm kind of a timid person. Now I'm bold in the pulpit, but that's safe ground, you know. But when I go out into the public and I'm meeting yeah. an unsafe person, yeah. it's kind of neutralized a little bit. I don't have the pulpit to hide behind, so I could get a little bit more intimidated yeah. at that point. But I heard an illustration years ago about Roger Clemens. He said when he made his first All-Star team with the Boston Red Sox, he was um, he had to have a designate. He didn't have a designated hitter because it was in the National League Park, and that's the first time he had to bat in years. So he stood in the plate and Doc Gooden delivered a 95 mile per hour fastball right down the heart of the plate. The umpire said, strike one. And he said, I backed out of the batter's box and I looked down at Gary Carter who was catching and he said, do my fastballs look like that? <laughs> and Gary Carter said, you better believe they do. And he said, I got back in the batter's box and he said, and I struck out, but he said I was forever a changed pitcher because I didn't have to be afraid of batters. Batters had to be afraid of me. Wow, that's good. And my life verse is, you know, Romans 1, 16. Amen. I think it's yours as well. Yes. Amen. Yeah. You know, we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of that's God. Right. That's so right. when we go out to reach a lost world, we don't have to be afraid of them. They have to be afraid of us because we're the one packing the dynamite. That's exactly right. And that's a very powerful motivation to me to get me out of my intimidation and comfort zone. It is funny. I think people think that as pastors, you know, we're just you know, automatically gregarious and it, you know, we just can win people to the Lord. Well, hey, we have to depend on the Holy Spirit <laughs> as much as anybody else. And uh, I think of a man that I was able to lead to the Lord last week. And, and uh, the first night when I met him, I gave him a gospel track and it's, it's the gospel track we use with the, the cross and it kind of animates a little bit. And I just said to him, uh, his name was Alex. I said, Alex, would you promise me to just read this tonight? That's all I'm asking you. And we were, we were, going into a hotel we had a group we were with and I said I'll see you tomorrow and so the next day I asked him I said uh, did you read the track well he had read it and he had a very good couple of questions and uh, later that afternoon I was able to, to lead him to Christ we've already wow. given him discipleship materials and but it was even then I mean just talking to him giving him the track talking to him you feel like you're putting someone on the spot just a little bit and we all have this trigger mechanism that doesn't want to look foolish I guess what I want to do is just advocate on this podcast that all of us as God's men would be willing to look foolish for the gospel's sake because Amen. so much of the, uh, whether it's flat out conforming to the world or whether it's over contextualizing or whatever you want to call it, so much of the, of the packaging of the modern day church is saying, hey, let's, let's be like the Me Too movement. Let's talk about you know, all of this uh, equal rights and social justice, and let's be really missional, uh, let's, let's, let's be cool. But uh, at some point in all of this, we have to come straight out with the fact that it is appointed that a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. 
every time that we've had a teacher that has impacted us, it's not one who's been bound by the script. There you go. You know, it's been someone who's been willing to step out of the box yeah. and allow God to work through their unique personality. And certainly that's true of soul winning as well. And I think every time that I've been deficient in my soul winning, if I pray and ask God to give me those opportunities, he's faithful to do it. You know, the one verse I wanted to bring up as we talk about soul winning and also discipleship is Galatians 4.19. And it's just an amazing verse. It says, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. And we've talked in the past about the gospel-centered movement and there's certainly truth to the fact that we wanna be motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of Christ constraineth us. Uh, but sometimes it's interesting to me that someone would act like, boy, this is such a new concept, uh, and somehow that you know, uh, Bible-believing fundamental pastor is just Johnny-come-lately with the idea of until Christ be formed in you. Because I believe that every biblical pastor, we have imbalanced pastors in our movement, every movement, but every biblical pastor who loves souls wants to see Christ formed in his church. I, th I think a godly pastor should look to the congregation and should be looking for Jesus in the church. And the congregation should certainly see it in the pulpit, you know, Christ's likeness. So with respect to soul winning and discipleship, sometimes as this verse says, we have to travail in birth again. I think we get the idea, well, that guy's church over there just automatically has these Christ-centered, gospel-centered people. But the truth of the matter is that in the trenches, it takes work, it takes confrontation of sin, it takes uh, expository preaching, it takes prayer, and sometimes that's just old-fashioned work. Amen. And uh, just staying in those trenches, those gospel trenches. I wonder if my mother would want to go through labor twice in order to have me. Oh, I know. <laughs> that, that, that verse, yeah. Talk about discipleship, yeah. But that is the effort that God requires That's us right. to, to do. Right. And it is effort on our part. Right. And, and, you know, desire on our part to see Christ formed in our people. I think what we've seen in recent days is a emphasis on the positional aspect of who we are in Christ to the minimalization of progressive sanctification. Right. And so, you know, but every day we're all challenged to live according to what we are. Right. You know, when I stood at the marriage altar back in 1987, the pastor pronounced Karen and I husband and wife, and that's what I was. I am a married man, but every day that I wake up, I got to live like what I am. Exactly. And I think the, the goal for us is not just to have people who are positionally in Christ, but are progressively modeling that to a world that desperately needs to see it. Well, I think that's the put off and put on passages, right? Yes, we, we put on Christ, we put off that which is displeasing to Christ. And somewhere along the line in this hyper grace mentality uh, that I sometimes hear, there's the idea that I don't have to put on or put off. Uh, I, someone said recently, I used to think I have to keep short accounts with God, but I'm thankful that the account was settled long ago. Well, that sounds wonderful. And it's true, the account was settled long ago, but there's also this matter of a progressive sanctification, walking in Christ, be holy as I am holy, being uh, tender to the Spirit. The Bible says we can quench the Spirit. The Bible says that we can grieve the Spirit. And I personally believe when that happens, I need to repent of that. Sure. And for these who would say, well, we don't have to repent, we don't have to confess, whatever. I think that that philosophy will not enhance uh, our discipleship, our soul winning, it will only detract from it. Sure. 
Well, in a positional sense, I can't please God anymore because he's as pleased as he, he can be in the person of And he son. loves us as much as he ever will. Right. right. But my actions please or displease God. And I right. think we're confusing relationship with fellowship. Right. Uh, my relationship with God is fixed based on the cross. My fellowship within that relationship fluctuates based on how I behave. Well, and Paul said, uh, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him Amen. to be a good soldier. So the Holy Scripture is inspired, and it does tell us that we can please the Lord with the way that we live. And I think every honest Christian would say, I want to please the Lord with Amen. my life. So I think that sometimes our trajectory gets off either because of over-programming, busyness, sometimes uh, certain catchphrases or... Uh, accommodating theologies that we want to accept that rob us from our soul-winning desire and our, our zeal to serve the Lord. And whether, whether that's hyper-grace or whether that's hyper-Calvinism, there's lots of hypers out there, <laughs> but they seem to pull us away from this staying the course of the true preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and I would just ask you this, when you, as you think about staying that course, and we could talk all day about isms and schisms and directions, what are a few things that you would say to the pastors and those that are with us today that would just help to keep us on the right path? Um, I, I mean, I think of revival because we often mention it, and I, I think there's a longing for it that's increasing. I think when revival comes, all that will matter is Jesus Christ and His will for our life. Beyond personal revival, church-wide revival, what are some things that you would say help you to just keep the course for soul winning, uh, for serving, and being faithful to the Lord? Two things I think are mightily important. I think, first of all, to recognize the authority of the Bible and to be in it every day. I think the Bible is a great book of balance and it keeps us from falling off the road into ditches on either side. Right. You know, positionally, progressively, you know, I think those are tensions that are found equally in the Word of God. And I think we find the perfect balance when we're in the Bible. And what happens sometimes is that we, look at a particular passage and we lift that passage and it is important, but we lift it to the exclusion of the rest of the word of God. Right. One of the things that I've done in my personal study is I read through the Bible every 90 days. And the reason that I do that is because I think that it gives me the overreaching thrust of what the Bible's about. And I don't pull one concept out of the Bible to the exclusion of all the others. And so we believe in verbal inspiration, but we also believe in plenary inspiration, Amen. that all of it's inspired. I think that balance is important. I think it's also important for pastors to have somewhat of an accountability system. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that we pastors, because of who we are, we feel uncomfortable bouncing our ideas off of other people. But if I'm wanting to go in a different direction that's different from the way that I've historically understood the Bible right. or the way I've been raised within fundamentalism, it might be good to take a couple of old mentors who've been around the block for a day or two and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. Help me out here. Am I thinking straight or not? Yeah. And other men whose judgment you value, I think it's good to have that level of accountability and not be too proud to embrace it. You know, I know when I, when I was younger, and that's why I feel freedom to counsel millennials along these same lines today, because I've practiced it. I've always sought men, my elder, that could kind of guide me. And, uh, and, you know, we both have had to separate from what we would call imbalanced fundamentalists. And we both came through this time where we said, I don't want to be around rebel rousers. I don't want to be around people who aren't preaching the word and rightly dividing the word. 
But I never wanted to ultra separate from good fundamental men. In fact, I wanted just the opposite. I wanted to find Bible-based men who were older than me and yeah. seek their input into my life. And whether that was building a building, borrowing money, whether that was a preaching series or how to handle someone who was disgruntled, whatever. I wanted to get counsel, and especially with ministry philosophy. Amen. And sometimes it doesn't feel good when someone says, I would be careful on that particular genre of worship, or I would, I would counsel you to be careful on, uh, you know, trying to change your name of your church or your motif just to please this crowd, you know, because you're, you maybe don't want to hear it, but if you're not careful, you will practice what you don't want your people to practice, and that's selective counseling. You don't want people in your church just going to whoever's going to tell them what they want to hear. And we can't choose sure. accountability partners who will tell us just what we want to hear. So I think excellent points are made there. Stay in the Word. Seek godly counsel. And I would add this. Remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, so many times uh, we see approaches today that are just really more like, well, I saw that on a website, I saw that at a conference. But we gotta try the spirits to see whether they be of God. And I, I think today from, from two guys that wanna just literally stay the course, uh, we, we've made mistakes, but we wanna finish well for the Lord. Amen. And I hope some things we said today would help you, whether it's accountability, whether it's being careful of some of the different types of doctrines, or whether it's just getting too involved in some of the program. I hope that something said today will keep you on the right trajectory. I was preaching in uh, Romania a few weeks ago and I was just talking about the fact that even our missionaries can get involved with cultural adaptation, homeschooling, um, you know, running errands. And you would think missionaries, they're just always evangelizing. But a number of the missionaries said to me, you know, I came here with that gift in mind, just wanting to get the gift out. But I got busy with program, I got busy with homeschooling, I got busy with this or that, and we haven't seen fruit. And I think all of us should desire, herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so let's stay that course, seeking the fruit, uh, seeking fruit that will remain, being willing to travail in birth again, uh, keeping the gospel in the middle, and doing all that God has called us to do to reach our generation for Christ. Brother Amsbaugh, thanks for joining Amen. with me today. God bless you. Thanks Appreciate for having me. We trust you enjoyed this episode of Spiritual Leadership Podcast. If there's a question or topic you would like Pastor Chapel to address in future episodes, send an email to qa at lancasterbaptist.org.